You're listening to the Quince podcast. A new variant of COVID-19 named Omicron has rung alarm bells across the world with multiple countries snapping shut the travel doors over the weekend. The variant, also known as B11529, was first detected in Botswana and then later identified in South Africa on 24th November. It has been said to be the most mutated version of the virus so far and is reportedly even more transmissible than the deadly Delta variant. Preliminary analysis and genome sequencing by experts in South Africa show that Omicron's heightened mutations may mean that it is more transmissible and even have more immune escaping properties. Based on this evidence, the World Health Organization has labeled Omicron as a variant of concern. A growing number of countries since the virus was first identified in South Africa have reported confirmed cases of this new variant, including the United Kingdom, Hong Kong, Canada, Italy, Germany, and Australia. With little knowledge known about this variant, how concerning is Omicron and what do we know about this variant so far? To know more about this new variant, for today's episode, we spoke with renowned virologist Dr. Shahid Jamil and Dr. K. Srinath Reddy, the president of the Public Health Foundation of India. You're tuned in to The Big Story, the podcast where we dissect the headline-making news for you, and I'm your host, Imad. There is too little research on Omicron to draw any conclusions, with the WHO and experts around the world urging caution. But what we do know so far is that Omicron is genetically different from other circulating variants, such as Delta, Alpha and Beta. And more importantly, it is the most mutated version of the COVID-19 virus, with more than 30 mutations in the spike protein, part of the virus which infiltrates human cells. So, does this mean that these mutations could make Omicron more transmissible and potentially even evade the body's immune defences? We took this question to Dr. Shahid Jamil, one of India's foremost virologists. He weighs in on what the preliminary evidence has suggested so far and how concerning it is. So, uh, this is by far the most mutated variant of the COVID-19 virus that we have seen so far. It has a total of 50 mutations, 5-0 mutations, of which 32 are in a region which we call the spike protein, which is a protein on the surface of the virus. And 10 of these mutations are within a region which we call the receptor binding domain and the N-terminal domain, These are regions which are used by the virus to bind to its target cells and to enter cells. This is also the region which is the target of antibodies that neutralize the virus, including monoclonal antibodies that have been used to treat patients. So that is the status at this time. What we don't know at this time is whether the virus will actually escape vaccine Uh, induced or infection-induced immunity. That work is going on. There is some data now available that the virus transmits quite well, So, uh, which means that it will continue to infect people. But whether it continues to infect only those who are susceptible, who those who don't have you know, vaccine or infection-derived immunity, or whether it it also reinfects people 
who have been previously immunized is not known at this time. What we also don't know at this time is whether it causes more severe disease. So that is the fact at this time, it's an evolving story. And over the next week, next two weeks, things will become clear. And if, you know, some of the things that we say today may actually be wrong in a week's time, two weeks time. So that's the factual position at this time. Questions regarding where this variant has originated from and of course, how it will respond to vaccines have emerged. For example, the Delta and the Kappa variant, both of which were first detected in India in 2020, are part of the B1617 lineage and share similar characteristics. But according to the WHO, Omicron is unique from other variants, meaning that it represents a new lineage of the virus. So, is there any similarity between Omicron and other variants which may help us navigate how this new variant will respond to vaccines? Dr. Jameel Vazan. Uh, but I'll take you back to the, the earlier variant that emerged from that region, which is called the beta variant. Beta is by far the most uh, immune escape competent mutant that we know so far. But beta doesn't spread very quickly. Delta, on the other hand, spreads very quickly, but you know its immune escape is moderate. So the question really is, are these two properties of this virus, immune escape versus transmissibility, uh, are they sort of mutually exclusive? Uh, so it is possible that if this virus spreads very quickly, it may be easily neutralized by existing antibodies. Uh, so we don't know the answer to those questions. All this speculation is essentially based on individual sites in the virus that have been mutated, and people are speculating based on that. But a word of caution there is that how individual mutations behave and how a combination of mutations behave cannot really be predicted very easily. So let us wait for the studies, but till that time, we need to be very cautious. Right. Uh, Dr. Jameel, how much of this uh, variant, Omicron, is, uh, how much of it is similar to, say, the beta variant that emerged in South Africa earlier? Well, there are, there are some sites uh, that have been mutated that are common, but uh, not all of them are present in, 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 not all of them are common between the two viruses. So if you're asking me whether there is a possibility that Omicron may have evolved from beta? The answer mm -hmm. is no. People have done some analyses, which is called phylodynamic analysis, which is essentially building a family tree of these viruses going back in time. So you mm -hmm. assign a clock to it, and that's called a phylodynamic analysis. And that seems to suggest that this virus is directly evolved from viruses that circulated around the middle of last year. So okay. it has taken about a year for this virus to, you know, sort of change and then emerge in the human population. And the emergence time is now uh, estimated to be sometime in early October of this year. So it's highly unlikely that it has evolved from beta. It's, it's an independently evolving variant. Now, whether it could have evolved uh, in somebody who was immunocompromised with a weak immune system, 
who could not clear the virus and the virus slowly mutated in this person. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that uh, it was evolving in some animal reservoir and jumped uh, again from an animal into the human population. So again, all these are hypotheses at this time. No firm answers. So if this new variant is different from the others, does it also show any different symptoms in the people infected by it? Unfortunately, there is not a lot of research and evidence on this yet. However, a report in the Telegraph does shed some light on this issue. Quoting a South African doctor who first raised alarm regarding this variant, the report states that one of the symptoms that patients exhibited was severe exhaustion. However, Dr. Jamil cautions us that there is very little known about the symptoms of this variant since there have not been enough cases of it so far. He adds that we are yet to know if there are any age-related or population-related symptoms. It is possible that what this doctor saw was only younger patients in whom the disease is naturally mild. Uh, so I think let's wait for more results to see whether if there are age-related differences in the disease severity, if there are population-based uh, uh, differences. So all that will have to wait. But the early signs at least are encouraging that the virus may not be causing severe disease. Uh, but let us not be complacent thinking like that. Let us right. be concerned, but not get paranoid or get worried too much. Within days of the discovery of this variant, several countries began imposing restrictions on flights to and from South Africa and its neighbours. Countries like Israel and Japan have completely closed off their international borders and Australia, the UK, the US and India have imposed new quarantine rules for those travellers who arrive from at-risk countries. But the question is, are travel bans really effective towards limiting the spread of an infectious disease? A study published in February 2020 in the Journal of Emergency Management found that travel bans as a policy measure is not very sound and concludes that there is limited research to support the use of travel bans. We took this question to Dr. K. Srinath Reddy as well, who is the president of the Public Health Foundation of India. And he says that given the spread of the previous variants like Alpha and Delta across the world, despite the travel bans, shows that it is an ineffective policy measure. Firstly, travel bans have not been shown to be very successful. Uh, when China first announced that it had the virus identified and that there were cases, several countries banned flights from China and we also restricted the flights from China. That did not stop the virus from traveling. It could be argued that already enough flights had gone carrying the virus or infected passengers. Similarly, when the Alpha variant was first disclosed by UK, they did so in December, though the patient was actually tested in September of 2020. And then immediately a lot of flights from UK were banned even by European countries and even the United States, if I recall. But that did not stop the Alpha variant from traveling elsewhere. And India, of course, got quite heavily infected in Punjab, Delhi, and Haryana by the Alpha variant. We have also seen that other bans that were imposed for other variants as well, uh, including the Delta variant, uh, that did not stop the Delta variant from really going around the world and really becoming the most dominant virus in the world. Yes. It will delay, to some extent, the huge surge of cases that might result if there is unrestricted entry of the virus into the country with a large number of virus-carrying people. 
but the virus is likely to have slipped in because also it happens that there are people who not necessarily are symptomatic and they might have already traveled uh, to places uh, before uh, the symptoms became manifest. Uh, what we really need to know is uh, whether the surveillance at the entry points is strong enough, testing is strong enough, and population prevention measures are strong enough, rather than just depend upon uh, travel bans. And how long can you have travel bans? How do you know that uh, people are not going to be coming into your country in the, with the virus from some other part of the world, uh, if, because the virus might have traveled there as well? And are you going to carry it for months or are you going to carry it for years? So it's not really a feasible option and it's not always a successful option. We have seen that in the past. Seeing the sudden locking of doors across the world, health officials in South Africa have also criticized the move, stating that it shows how, quote-unquote, expendable the continent is. Speaking to BBC World, Dr. Ayoade Alakija, the co-chair of the Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance, slammed the countries who impose such strict and sudden restrictions on the entire continent, adding that, quote-unquote, if the virus was first detected in Africa instead of China, the world would have locked the continent and thrown away the key, end quote. As the world scrambles to limit the transmission of this new variant, a spotlight has also been thrown on the limited availability of vaccines in developing countries. According to a CNN report, the vaccination rates in the eight most affected countries by travel bans related to Omicron range from 5.6% to 37%, the latter being in Botswana. And these low vaccination rates point towards the growing behaviour of use and hoarding of COVID vaccines by wealthy countries like the US and Canada, where the governments have bought enough doses to vaccinate their population several times over, but have failed to share these extra doses with the developing world. The WHO, according to a CNN report, has also called out this behaviour and called it, quote-unquote, self-defeating and immoral. Dr. Reddy adds that countries like Canada at one point had a 1 to 5 ratio of population to vaccine doses, meaning that there were 5 doses of a COVID vaccine for every person in the country. He says that if there's unequal distribution of vaccines, the cycle of new variants emerging and travelling around the world will never stop. Well, the problem is many countries which have either produced vaccines or purchased vaccines in large amounts have kept it for themselves. They've used it for universal adult immunization for two doses, which is fine. They had to protect their population. Then they started giving booster doses after booster doses. And it's not that booster doses are not required sometimes, but you are using the booster doses ideally to protect the most vulnerable sections. I can understand booster doses being given to immunocompromised people, elderly people above the age of 65 years, and possibly to health workers who are actively dealing with a large number of people who are infected to protect them. But if you start that everybody above the age of 12 years gets a booster dose, like Israel did, and now other countries are following suit, including the United States of America, and now European countries are beginning to follow track as well. So which means that you're actually cornering the vaccines, keeping the vaccines, and using them over and over and over again for your population and you are not bothered about the people who are more likely to get severe disease and are very vulnerable outside. And that's short-sighted because if you keep doing that, variants will emerge in different parts of the world. Variants will travel across the world. 
variants will enter even these high income, high vaccine uh, uh, storage countries, and they will, uh, the vaccine rich countries are going to get infected again. I mean, what happened with Delta? I mean, after all, uh, both the uh, United States and uh, Europe vaccinated themselves quite uh, fairly well by March, April of 2021, beginning from November 2020. But when Delta came, then they had a huge wave. So there's no point in saying that uh, you will only keep your vaccines to yourself and uh, get each person three doses, four doses, or five doses, where the rest of the is going to become a variant manufacturing site, and that's going to come back on you. So that is extremely short-sighted, uh, selfish and short-sighted. Now, globally, an attempt has been made to increase vaccine availability in developing countries, with the largest program being WHO's COVAX. According to a CNN report, as of last month, only 537 million doses of vaccines have been shipped to 144 countries under the COVAX program, which is a small, small percentage of the 7.9 billion doses administered globally so far. And the main supplier for COVAX is Serum Institute of India, which has a contract to supply more than 500 million doses, but has only managed to supply 30 million so far. The supply constraint was due to the Indian government halting all international sales abroad after the Delta variant cases exploded in the country in March this year. Only on 26 November, nearly eight months later, was the vaccine manufacturer given approval by the centre to resume exports to COVAX. Dr. Reddy says that the delay in providing vaccines to developing countries shows a harsh side of humanity, with some countries who did receive the vaccine finding them to be nearing the expiry date. Well, I think vaccine inequity has been quite huge. Uh, there was an attempt to set up the COVAX facility uh, under the WHO and other uh, international development partners, and Gavi was actually handling it. Uh, and they promised that they would be able to deliver a large number of vaccines uh, to countries which could not afford to purchase them or who were not manufacturing them. Uh, Africa, in particular, was supposed to be one of the major beneficiaries. But then the countries which said that they would donate did not donate in adequate amount or in right amount of time, at the right time. And uh, neither did the companies. The companies wanted to have a good profit and they were selling only to the high income countries, to the highest bidder. And uh, that actually left even COVAX shorthanded in terms of vaccine supplies. And vaccines started flowing in very late uh, and they were being given when they were almost near expiry. It's not really a very, um, I mean, a humanitarian gesture, but it was like a throwaway clothes uh, when being given uh, just about the time they were about to expire. And countries in uh, Africa were getting it one or two days before the expiry date and that to destroy the stocks. You know, that is not the kind of uh, behavior that is expected of mature nations. But many of the nations started uh, holding the vaccines and saying, okay, we'll use it in our population even for booster doses and so on, uh, forgetting the... As far as India is concerned, I think India did step up and it did supply 66 countries, whether as a part of uh, uh, humanitarian aid or even as a part of commercial obligations. It did that till uh, April when the second wave really came up in a big way uh, then India realized that it had to uh, vaccinate as many people as fast as possible. Uh, because initially, I think the assumption was 
that we will not see the second wave. That was a wrong assumption, of course. So that's why they planned a fairly leisurely schedule up to September 2021. But in, well, they had to change the strategy. But by the time they started immunizing a fairly large number of people with the first dose and started administering the second dose, they resumed the supplies in October. And now that the Indian supply chain actually may expand with other vaccines coming in, perhaps they will keep uh, both the priorities on hand, that is both the domestic uh, vaccination schedules as well as the international one. So India's, uh, um, I mean, uh, challenges were real. And uh, I would actually uh, find greater fault, if at all, uh, with uh, Western nations who bought and hoarded a very large number of vaccines. At one point in time, the Canadians had five doses of vaccine stored per Canadian eligible Canadian, five times more than they needed. Uh, so uh, then uh, similarly, the United States, uh, they had a lot of uh, vaccines also destroyed because of poor storage in uh, some of the uh, facilities that they had in Baltimore. And the Johnson vaccines, millions of doses had to be destroyed. So uh, those kind of things can happen anywhere. But if you are going to be keeping uh, many more times of the number of vaccines than you really require, and are not immediately sharing it with some other countries who do require, then that is vaccine nationalism at its worst. And that is also short-sighted because definitely you are only uh, going to ena enable the emergence of variants, uh, which will come back to you. As of 29 November, no cases of Omicron have been detected in India. The center and several states like Maharashtra have already imposed new travel restrictions and mandates for international passengers, which include providing a 14-day travel history and a post-arrival RT-PCR test. If you want to know more about Omicron and the new travel restrictions, visit the Quint Fit and the Quint websites. If you like listening to this episode, please subscribe to The Big Story for episodic updates. We're available on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, GeoSavan, and most of the other popular podcast streaming platforms. For other podcasts, please log on to the Quint website and for any feedback, please shoot an email to podcast at thequint.com. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quint website and check out our other podcasts. 